Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. So we are uh, this morning continuing a sermon series that we've been in uh, for the past few weeks in the book of Genesis. We've been looking at the first chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, We've called this series Origins uh, because in these early chapters of Genesis, we really do see the foundation uh, for so many of the large, big, worldview-shaping things that we believe as Christians. Things about where the world came from and who we are as created beings. We've looked at things like marriage and sexuality. We've looked at work and vocation. And so this morning, we're going to continue that series uh, with a look at uh, Genesis chapter 3. How do we deal uh, with sin and with shame in our lives? How do we deal uh, with the parts of our lives that are marked by darkness and failure and weakness? This is one of the major questions. Right? This is one of the most important questions that we have to think through as human beings because as human beings, we're marked not only by our gifts and our strengths, our personalities and our uniqueness, the things that are wonderful about us, but we also have to deal with the parts of ourselves that are not what we wish they were. We have to deal with the parts of ourselves that are not pure light, uh, but that we know and we experience uh, to be dark. How uh, do we deal with this? Where do we go to solve uh, the problems of our inner weakness and sin? Our culture uh, offers absolutely no helpful answers on this. In our uh, post-Christian secular world, the stories that we tell ourselves about what a good and meaningful human life is usually boil down to being yourself. Right, giving authentic self-expression to your own gifts, your own passions, your own ability. The salvation stories that we tell are not the salvation stories of conversion and change. They're the salvation stories of coming to realize who we truly are and learning to give that expression. And in a world where salvation is all about authentic self-expression, what do we do with those parts of ourselves that we know aren't what they should be? Those parts of ourselves that we know we should not express. Those parts of ourselves that we're worried about what it would mean for us if the people around us were to see them, if they were to know us as we really are. Our culture tells us that shame is just a product of cultural expectations, right? That we feel shame because our culture makes us feel ashamed about things. There's things that cultures make to be taboo. There's expectations that cultures conform us into. And we need to move beyond those things in order to get free of shame. There's another voice that says that shame is just a psychological dysfunction, right? That we need to learn to love ourselves more, forgive ourselves more, think more highly than we, should, than, than we do about ourselves. But the scriptures tell us that sin and shame are neither a cultural project out there nor just psychological baggage that we bring. 
but that it's a real experience that every human being has, growing out of a sense that we have of ourselves where we know that we are not well. We know that all is not as it should be in our lives. And so how do we respond to sin? That's what this passage is all about. You remember Willie preached last week on uh, the passage of humanity's fall into sin. Adam and Eve eat the apple, the one tree that they were told not to eat of, and sin enters into the world. And now in the aftermath, in the wreckage of that sin, we see Adam and Eve try to respond to their sin. We see them try to deal with their sin and their shame. And how do they respond? Interestingly, we hear in verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Two people who up to this point in their life had never known shame, who had lived uh, completely naked in the garden without anything to fear, fearing neither the judgment of uh, their spouse, not yet having uh, thorns and thistles to worry about in the world so you could run through a garden naked without too much concern. They lived that way together, and now as soon as sin enters into the world, they look at each other and feel this instinctive panic flood in, and they know that they just have to hide. They can no longer bear to be seen openly and nakedly for who they are. And so they bake for themselves loincloths out of fig leaves. Cornelius Planiga, a uh, philosopher, put it this way. He said, human shame is a feeling of distress at our deficiencies, deformities, or absurdities real or imagined, and especially at the uncovering of these things. It's also a feeling of distress at the uncovering of our mere privacies. As generations of Bible readers have recognized, this passage, Genesis 3, suggests that the confluence of these sources of distress with a few words of great sorrow and mystery, after they had sinned, Adam and Eve knew that they were naked. For the first time in their lives, they could not stand scrutiny. It wasn't merely that they flinched when their partner's gaze dipped southward. It was also that they had trouble looking into each other's eyes. And so Adam and Eve first hide from one another. They hide from one another behind fig leaves. Now we can think of fig leaves in our own lives, right? We don't not many of us, uh, when we feel ashamed, literally make clothes for ourselves out of bushes. But we can think of fig leaves as being those things that we put in front of ourselves to shield ourselves from the world's gaze. Those things that we put out for the world in the hopes that the world will see them instead of seeing us. That the world will notice our fig leaves instead of our vulnerabilities. That they'll notice our fig leaves instead of the true self that we fear being exposed and all of us, by this point in life, have gotten good at making things uh, to function as fig leaves. Some of us hide behind money and success, believing if we have enough outward success that people will look on that and believe us to be accomplished people, and we can hide behind that. Some of us hide behind a well-cultivated physical attractiveness, believing that if we keep the outside looking good and fit and clean and fashionable that people will be satisfied with that and love that and not look at who we know ourselves to be on the inside. 
Some of us work uh, to build a perfect family, perfectly well-behaved children, so that the world will look on our happy little family and believe that we surely must have it figured out. We put fig leaves out. Some people even use religion as a fig leaf, right? Believing that if we use the right words, if we seem righteous enough and holy enough and good enough, if we do all the right external things, that people will look at that and overlook the inside. Jesus had something to say about that when he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, right? That they work to keep the outside clean, but on the inside there's rot. Left to ourselves, the church can become quite a fashion show for our fig leaves. It can become a place where we get together to compete and to show off to one another, where we try to have it the best, where we try to put, put forward this perfect Christian face towards one another, hoping that the members of our church take that and say, yeah, he seems to be fine. He seems to have it all together. And don't press in beneath that to see the self that we hide in shame and in darkness. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Spurgeon said the church was never meant to be a masquerade. It was never meant to be a place where we put on masks in order to hide behind a well-curated image and yet hide our sin, hide our need, hide our weakness from one another. So first, Adam and Eve, in trying to deal with their sin, hide from one another. But then they take the rather curious and foolish step of trying to hide from God. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking, verse 8, in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself from you. Now, it is a curious thing to try to hide yourself from the all-present, all-knowing creator of the universe. Um, and yet, Adam and Eve, in their fear, jump behind some bushes, uh, believing that this will hide them from God. We're told that they heard him coming and they were afraid, so they hid. They heard his steps moving towards them, and they were fearful. God moves towards them, and they assume that he's moving towards them in judgment, and that they have much to be afraid of, so they hide. Now we're going to learn as the story goes on that the steps of God towards them, he's coming towards them not to judge them, although we will look next week at the curse, there is judgment involved. But he's coming to begin the process of reconciliation. He's coming to move towards them to forgive them. And yet they hide, which I think is indicative of how so many of us deal with our sin and with our shame. Fearing God's judgment, we run from the only one who has the power to forgive us, right? Because we fear judgment, we hide from grace. Because we fear his condemnation, we inadvertently run away from his mercy and his kindness. I think it's true that most of us have a kind of ambivalence about God, right? We, on the one hand, both long for and desire him, and on the other hand, we are terrified of what that might mean. We long for some sense of communion with him, of being loved by him, of knowing his presence. And yet, on the other hand, knowing ourselves, knowing our flaws, knowing our brokenness, knowing our sin, we're terrified of him. And so we're stuck 
oftentimes on the horns of a dilemma. Our life with God being driven by alternating periods of longing and running. Right? So much of my life has been marked by those two things. Seasons of wanting to draw near to God and then seasons of running away. Seasons of believing that God doesn't want anything to do with me. So I'm best off keeping my distance from him. And so when we're left to respond to our own sin, we hide. We hide from one another. We hide from God. And in the process, it destroys us. We literally waste away. Sin and shame have a way of eating away at us. Right? If you've you've gone through the 12-step programs, you know there's a saying that we're only as sick as our secrets. And that's true, right? That our secrets, what we think we hide from others... We end up swallowing, and it ends up destroying us little by little over time. King David knew something about this. Uh, When he writes in Psalm 32, one of his great psalms, prayers of repentance, he describes Psalm 32, verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. And so the invitation for us is the same as it was for Adam and Eve when God called out to them, where are you? Right? It's a question that's basically, are you you done yet? Are you, you know, think about God, the creator of the universe, the one who made that little shrub that Adam and Eve are hiding behind. When he asked, where are you? It's not because they fooled him. And it's not because he didn't know where they had gone. It's him inviting them. It's like, guys, can we, are we done? Can you, where are you? Will you come out of hiding? Will you step out from the behind the bush and say, here I am? And so will you. I mean, are you, are you tired yet of trying to manage your own sin? Are you exhausted and worn out enough yet from trying to manage your own shame your own, your own hiding, to be willing to try to see what God would do with it. To see what God would do with the dark parts of yourself. To see what God would do with the unresolved parts of yourself. Will you answer the question and come out to God? So we've seen how we respond to sin. Next we want to look at how God responds uh, to their sin. I love this in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I think there's a lot wrapped up in that little sentence. I mean, on the one hand, it it tells us that Adam and Eve knew what God sounded like when he walked, right? That that he uh, made a habit in the garden of walking with them in the garden in the cool of the day. That they knew when he was coming, they knew it wasn't a deer, they knew it wasn't a bear, they knew it wasn't some animal. They knew this was God walking. This is the sound of God's footsteps. And it raises a question for us, doesn't it? Does God have feet? God's walking, they're hearing the sound of his feet crunching the leaves as he goes through the garden path. Does God have feet? Feet. Now, this is uh, biblical scholars call phrases like this. This is a big word. This will help you in a Scrabble game. Uh, the word is anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. What that means is, what that means is, there's there's things about God that cannot be adequately described in human language. 
right? That in the Bible, God tells us things about himself, but our knowledge of God always falls short of who God actually is, right? Whatever you think of when you think of holiness, it approximates but doesn't reach God's holiness. Whatever you think of when you think of God's glory, it approximates but doesn't reach his glory. Whatever you imagine when you read Revelation and read stories about a throne surrounded by rainbows and all that, whatever you imagine in your mind, it gets you towards a vision of it, but it falls short of it. And so oftentimes, the authors of the Bible will use anthropomorphism. They'll describe God, the indescribable one, in human terms. So they'll say things like, they heard his feet, they heard him walking. Earlier in Genesis, we've already seen this, when it says that God breathed life into Adam, right? Does God have lungs? Does God have breath? And so, anthropomorphism, it describes the indescribable God in human language. That's one way of looking at the footfall of God in Genesis 3. But the Gospels in the New Testament also hint at something else, which is that anthropomorphism, all the Old Testament uh, giving human attributes to God, were a shadow of the time that God would himself become a human, right? That, that eventually God actually did have feet. Eventually God actually did take breath into his lungs. God did become a flesh and blood human in the God-man Jesus and so all of these Old Testament allusions to the physicality of God, they point us to the fact that God is coming near to us in a human, as a man. Sometimes uh, Old Testament scholars will talk about these uh, appearances of God in the Old Testament as pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus. That any time God takes on a form, takes on a body, that it is a pre-Christmas appearance of Jesus, which if you think long enough about it, kind of makes your head hurt. To think about Jesus eternally incarnate, eternally so wed to humanity that he could appear before he even took on flesh. But they hear God's feet crunching the leaves, walking through the path in the garden. And so here he is, the God who's above all coming into the garden, the God who is all times present everywhere, becoming present to them, walking towards them. The feet that fell in the Garden of Eden and his steps become the steps of Jesus in the hills of Palestine and the streets of Jerusalem, even on top of the waters of the Sea of Galilee. It's the same feet walking. The feet that walked after Adam and Eve in the garden were the same little tiny feet that showed up in the Bethlehem manger and the same bloody feet that were nailed to Calvary's cross. The path that God began walking towards sinners in the garden led to those same feet getting nailed to the cross. The feet that chased after Adam and Eve, that moved towards them, not away from them in their sin, is this, are the same feet the same feet that walk towards us in Jesus. Here we meet a God who is a pursuing God, a God who in the face of sin and shame doesn't move away from us. He moves towards us. And he doesn't move towards us in anger. 
or towards us in judgment. He moves towards us in mercy and in love. The feet that pursued Adam and Eve in those bushes are pursuing you even now. They're pursuing you in all of your hiding, in all of your running, in all of your shame, in all of your secrecy. God moves towards you. He comes after us. And so then we have the God who spoke heaven and earth into being. The God who by the, word, by the mere sound of his voice said, let there be light and there's light. He begins this series of questions towards Adam and Eve. I love that in this section that we read, the only speaking that God does is asking questions. He asks, where are you? He asks, who told you you were naked? He asks, what have you done? Right, God here uh, comes not with the declarative voice, but with an inquisitive voice. He comes seeking after them. He comes inviting them to give voice to their sin, to confess and to repent and to be honest and to come clean. And instead, Adam and Eve choose another way. They choose not to come clean. They choose not to come out of hiding. They choose not to tell the whole ugly truth about what happened. Instead, we get this. Where are you? Verse 9. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid himself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit to eat of the tree, and yeah, then I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Instead of honest confession, we get a master class in avoidance. We get uh, the first recorded instance of uh, a husband and wife refusing to admit fault. The first recorded instance of a husband blaming his wife uh, for his own moral failings, right? Uh, we get the first recorded instance of husband and wife together blaming God for the world that he made, right? So it's not just my wife did it, it's the woman you gave me. Like, look, God, I was doing fine here. I was in the garden, and I was naming animals, and I was only eating of the good trees. And then Eve came along, who I got, I got to say, God, she didn't, get here, she didn't get here on her own, right? I just went for a nap, and you, you know, made Eve. And now she got me into this whole tree of the knowledge of good and evil business, right? It's blaming it's, it's, it's downshifting his responsibility. We all, and friends, we as the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve uh, have been doing this consistently uh, for millennia now, right? When confronted with our sin, we all do this. We minimize it. We blame other people. We blame God himself. How many times has there been something in your life where you've said, you know what, if circumstances were different, Right? If I hadn't been suffering the way that I am, I wouldn't have to resort to this. Right? If my life, if God had given me a different sort of life, I wouldn't have to enter into this right now. So we blame God, we make excuses. We do this to this day. 
This feels like, uh, as somebody who does a fair amount of counseling, this, there's a case to be made. This is the first marital counseling uh, session in the Bible, right? So often what marital counseling devolves into is husband and wife blaming one another. And there is almost no limits to it. I've seen uh, spouses on the back end of an affair blaming the cheated on spouse for the affair. Right? Well, you know what? If she was nicer to me, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done that. Right? We continue in this. We do this to one another all the time. And so God meets them in the midst of that. He tries to draw them out. He tries to, to provoke out of them an honest repentance. What we get from them is what Paul is going to go on to call worldly sorrow. Paul, Paul uh, uh, contrasts what he calls genuine repentance and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is basically sor- being sorry that you got caught, right? And we can do that, right? When, when there is a type of re- something that looks like repentance, it looks sad, it might even look tearful, it seems honest. But what it is, it goes about an inch deep, and it's our response to the feeling of having hurt someone, our response to the feeling of being caught. But it, never, it always makes excuses. It always seeks to minimize. And what God invites us to instead is real, deep, and genuine repentance. And then I love this. Uh, we're gonna, next week, we're going to look at um, the rest of this chapter. But I do want you to look ahead a little bit at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. I love this. He takes these people who are hiding from themselves, hiding from God, making uh, poorly made clothes of fig leaves, and he says, no, no, let me cover you. I understand your shame. I understand your hiding. He doesn't say, get naked right now, right? He doesn't say, off with the fig leaves. He says, no, no, let me cover you. Stop trying to hide from me. Stop trying to hide from one another. Let me make a covering for you. And what we get, uh, we believe, is the first animal sacrifice in the Bible, right? That he, he made clothes for them out of skin, right? Some, something was wearing that skin before it got on Adam and Eve. And so what we have here is something pointing towards, pointing forwards to the fact that sin and shame has to be covered by a sacrifice, Something that points forward to what became the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, where the people would go to the temple to make sacrifice for their sins, and what points us ultimately ahead to Jesus, the one pure and spotless sacrifice, the one who alone can cover our sin. And so how does God deal with their sin? He comes to them. He moves towards them in love. He invites their repentance. And then he covers over their shame. He says, stop trying to hide from me and let me cover you. And so how do we respond? We've looked at how we respond to our sin. We've looked at how God responds to our sin. And now the most pressing question is, how do we respond to God? How do we respond to God? This is, you know, ultimately... uh, we think that, the, you know, when I was writing this sermon, I thought, oh, I know the, I know the, third, the third point, because there's got to be three points. You know, how, does God, how do we respond to our sin? How does God respond to our sin? And then third, well, now how do we respond to our sin? Right now, now that we've seen how God responds, how do we respond? 
But the question for us before how we respond to our sin is how do we respond to how God responds to our sin? Because of God's grace, we deal first not with our sin, but with God. Right? We learn in the scriptures that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Right? It's not looking at our sin forever and getting really, really... It's not about looking at ourselves until we feel bad enough about it. Right? It's not looking at our sin and wallowing in our shame until we feel sorry enough, until we've prayed enough, until we've done enough. It's looking at the kindness and the mercy of God that leads us to repentance. We'll never respond to our sin or to our shame in healthy ways until we respond to the God who covers us, until we respond to the God who's coming near to us. Instead of repentance, we'll continue to make excuses, we'll continue to blame, we'll continue to excuse ourselves. Only seeing and dealing with the grace of God in Jesus frees us to finally, honestly repent without excuses, without minimization, to be honest about our sin and our weakness and our guilt. Looking back at Psalm 32, where David had earlier said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Here he describes coming to God in repentance in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, And I did not cover my iniquity, right? I went from covering it up, I went from hiding to saying, I will not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Then verse 7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. David's experience of God's grace there uh, is the experience that Adam and Eve robbed themselves of by, by staying in hiding and continuing to make excuses. David says, I did not cover my sin. I stopped covering it up. And then you see what he said? He said, God, you became a hiding place for me. Friends, you'll know that you've begun to understand the grace of God in Christ when you go from trying to hide from God to hiding in God. Right? When you go from a posture of, oh no, I've sinned, I hope God doesn't find out, to, oh no, I've sinned, I need God. I need not to hide from God in my own shame and my own projections. I need to hide my life in God. I need to hide in the place of the, the cleft in the rock where he protects me from my sin, where he protects me from my shame, where he protects me even from his own judgment. The way Paul talks about this, he says, your life is hidden with God in Christ. Your life is not your own. Your life is hidden with God in Christ. So friends, we can stop hiding. We can stop trying to hide ourselves. We can stop pretending with one another. We can stop keeping our distance from God because he hides us. He covers us. He covers us in the righteousness of his son He covers us with the perfect life of Jesus. So that when he looks at us, he sees not our guilt or our shame or our sin. He sees his sons and daughters. He sees his forgiven and his cleansed children. We mentioned earlier uh, that we are heading up on the season of Lent. 
Now, Lent might seem weird to you. Uh, maybe, on the one hand, Lent's something that you're never used to doing, and it all sounds kind of Catholic. Or maybe it's something you did grow up doing, uh, and it feels very Catholic. Uh, Lent is a season dedicated to focusing on repentance. Now, that sounds like a lot of fun, uh, doesn't it? To take 40 days to focus on repentance. Where do I sign up? But what Lent is at its best is it's not uh, about self-denial for self-denial's sake. It's not about uh, this morbid sense of introspection. Right? It's not about just feeling bad about ourselves. In fact, it ought to be the very opposite. What Lent is for us is it's a reminder to us that we do not repent very well. Right? We live in a culture that does not deal with the darkness in our lives, that tries to ignore everything that's painful, everything that's shameful, everything that's dark, everything that's unpleasant. And Lent is a way to witness to the fact that in Christ, repentance is sweet. Repentance isn't something to run away from. It's not darkness for darkness' sake. It's about awakening our hunger for grace. It's about a season where we, where we enter into a time of repentance so that the glory and grace and joy of Easter shines all the brighter, so that we can receive the incredible good news of Jesus' resurrection. But the bad news always goes before the good news. Death always precedes resurrection. That's the story of our lives. And Genesis 3 reminds us that it's the story of the whole world. That in the midst of a world of death and sin and shame, God in his grace moves towards us in love and in mercy and in forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we admit that... Um, so often we do hide. When we sin, we don't want to be seen. Um, so we hide from one another. We hide behind our smiles. We hide behind our success. We hide uh, behind just keeping people at arm's length. We tell everyone that things are fine when inwardly we know that everything is far from fine. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us by your grace, that you would woo us out of hiding. Lord, that we would learn that in Christ, all of our sin and shame is covered. That we have nothing to hide. We have nothing to lie about. We have nothing to try to cover over. Because we are perfectly covered in Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you that you do come after us. I don't know uh, the state of everyone's soul here today. But I know that there's some here who are running and who are hiding. There's some uh, who've been trying to keep you at arm's length for a very long time. And so, Lord, I pray that your grace would overwhelm our defenses, uh, that we would hear your invitation, that we would stop our running and our hiding, and we would come to let you, the only one who can forgive, the only one who can cover, to let you come near us and to hold us and to cover us and to forgive us in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.